The views expressed on Geeks and Beats are those of the participants alone and do not necessarily reflect the views of their employers. Sorry, I'm uh, running a little bit late here. I uh, just had to finish teaching my young Padawan learner some of the uh, expert techniques to using a lightsaber. <laughs> I thought you had some kind of weekend getaway for an anniversary or something. Oh, we got back from Niagara on the Lake, picked up the little one from the grandparents, and uh, she has a lightsaber like the ones that extend. She's got <laughs> Obi-Wans. So I don't have a lightsaber, so I just used a broomstick. And I had to teach her some of the basics. And now she's engaging in a massive battle with the dark Sith who lives two doors down. Oh, dear. So you are breeding another Star Wars kid. When people asked me, do you want a boy or a girl? I said, girl, because I was a boy. I had a little brother. I knew about the boy thing. I wanted a girl. And when I got one, it didn't occur to me until after she arrived that I'm not going to be able to pass on any of my boy knowledge. This is true. Boy, was I wrong about that. Well, apparently so. <laughs> uh, let's just make sure that doesn't go down any wrong pathways. I have advised her that anger leads to hate. Hate leads to the dark side. Right. So uh, please also encourage this young woman to uh, play sports, unlike her dad. Yes. Because sports are, are a good character builder. The, the things, the lessons that you learn in sports will help you tremendously later in life. Don't be like dad in that respect. I find your lack of faith disturbing. <laughs> Here we go. From the headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes and GeoCities, this is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guest Sting. Star Wars The Bank Awakens. The film is expected to rake in as much as $2 billion at the box office. Got a cat and a spare iPod? We look at the science of music for your kitty cat. Groove Shark goes down the tubes. We'll look at how a $730 million lawsuit can put crimp into your piracy plans. Plus, Leezer Suit Larry and the Land of the Lounge Lizards returns from the 80s. And why you might want to hit Control-Alt-Delete before your next flight. Opinions are like the Blackberry Bold. You find them everywhere, but nobody's impressed with them. And now, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. could open at $500 million, and the expectation is it could actually net $2 billion once all is said and done. See, I'm not, I'm not surprised at that. Okay, so we seem to be super focused on the North American box office for any movie that comes out. And that is a tiny, well, not a tiny, but a just a small sliver of what a movie can open worldwide. I mean, we look at Fast and Furious 7, and it's over a billion dollars already. So for something like Star Wars, sure, two billion shouldn't be a problem at all. And one of the things that I've learned from traveling around the world is that a lot of the movies that we 
like here in North America and that we will go and, and see here in North America don't translate in other parts of the world because of, of um, legal issues in terms of language or sexuality, uh, cultural issues, uh, social issues. They don't work. So some, something like, for example, um, Talladega Nights. <laughs> yes. That is an absolutely huge movie in Asia. As William Blake wrote, the catworm forgives the plow. Let me just quote the late, great Colonel Sanders, who said, I'm too drunk to taste this chicken. He said, go to do with this. I got a message for all of them, right? Shake and bake. What does that do? Does that blow your mind? You know, it's just more or less good, clean fun and can be shown on all the pay-per-view channels there. Uh, it's Fast and Furious 7, same kind of thing. Lots of action. Uh, maybe a couple of edits here and there for, for sexual content, but otherwise it's just fine. Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, any of those sort of big action films, uh, regardless of genre, will, will do extremely well in Asia, in Europe, and in you know even parts of Africa and South America. Did I ever tell you that story about a good buddy of mine who married a French woman, as in like French from France? Mm-hmm. And when they re-released the Star Wars trilogy, he took his wife to see Star Wars because in France, Star Wars wasn't a big thing in the early 80s. And so she had never seen any of the films. And when Darth Vader leans down and says, no, I am the father, she goes, <laughs> and the entire audience, he said, swiveled their heads and looked at her like, where have you been for 30 years? <laughs> That's hysterical. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. Insiders say The Force Awakens will actually um, be seen in more theaters than any other film in the history of cinematography, 4,500 locations in North America alone, which eclipses Twilight Eclipse at 4,468. So the idea that it could open with a half billion dollars and in no time worldwide bring in two billion bucks, not much of a surprise. What's more of a surprise? The films that are willing to open up against Star Wars? What's the uh, the opening day for this? At December 18th, there is only one other film that is willing to risk going up against Star Wars, and it's the Tina Fey, Amy Poehler comedy, Sisters. Y'all ready for this jelly? <laughs> You're older than sister. No. Yes. Why would you say that? Your face. Oh. Well, that'll tell you something about what the studio thinks of that film. Exactly. Well, not just that film, but also the idea that not everyone, well, okay, almost everyone will see Star Wars, but not everyone's going to be dragged to see that film. The ladies will have something to see while the men nerd out in a galaxy far, far away. Yeah, I would like to see what the marketing rationale is for that, but that's, that's you're probably right, because not, not a lot of women are going to, you know, you might as well have a buddy comedy for women. Well, the rest of the guy. Well, the rest of the 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 the, um, the universe goes out and sees sees uh, Star Wars. Um, it, I wonder how long the movie's going to be. And the reason I ask that is because that determines the number of screenings a movie can have over the course of a weekend, right? So you either have to have a, a shorter movie on fewer screens, or you can have a longer movie on more screens. So if what did you say, forty five hundred? 4,500 screens. Okay, so that lets me think. That, that, that leads me to believe that it's going to be a two-hour film because in order to get maximum box office 
results on opening weekend, you're going to have to screen it an awful lot of times. And if it's a longer film, you're going to need more more screens. Well, you also have to take into consideration J.J. Abrams, the director. The most recent Star Trek film, Into Darkness, had a two-hour and 12-minute running time. Yeah, and that's, uh, that's, that's normal. For I'm going to see the Kurt Cobain movie, uh, Montage of Heck, this week. And it runs exactly two hours and 12 minutes. So, you know, that's that's a, a reasonable time. I think people... A reasonable time? I, I think it's it, an awful long time for... So much, so long that RunP.com has a breakdown of points in which you can go excuse yourself to use the facilities during that movie. Well, I'm th- fine. Then, then, <laughs> then that works. But people, you know, for, for what they're paying for a movie these days, you don't want to be out of there necessarily in, in 89 minutes. You want to have, a, you know, you want to at least if the film is good. I mean, we should we should talk about this. If the film is is is, is good, it doesn't matter how long it is. Uh, and, and I would imagine that if you're dealing with a Star Wars movie, it has to be at least two hours to, to satisfy the faithful. Don't you think? My favorite part about runp.com is that they've got an iPhone app, which now talks to your Apple Watch and will vibrate on your wrist to let you know now is the time to go pee. Isn't that interesting? And we'll come back and we'll get an update on your experience with your new uh, with your new device. But one of the things I've heard about the Apple Watch is that when notifications come on during a movie, uh, <laughs> you end up spraying all your seatmates with all this light and there's no way you can turn that off. Yeah, there's no uh, brightness control on it, at least not that I'm aware of. Science has created the perfect music for cats. Yes, uh, they have. There was a story last week saying that we've got about eight more years before we completely overwhelm the current internet infrastructure. And this sort of thing is not helping matters because, again, it feeds into this idea that the internet is for cats and nothing but cats. Well, there are two things the internet's for, and one of them is definitely for cats. All right. So uh, these people have, uh, these scientists uh, have, have spent an awful lot of time trying to figure out exactly what kind of music uh, cats respond to. And uh, this is what it sounds like. Applied Animal Behavioral Science is the study that has helped us come to the conclusion that this is the best music. What do we call those awards of for dubious research? The Ignoble Awards. Ignoble Awards. That's the one I was thinking of. Yes. So this is probably going to be a nominee this year. The stated aim of the prize is to honor achievements that first make people laugh, then make them think. I suppose... Is this making you think? Well, what what is the what is the end game of tr- of, of determining what kind of song, uh, what kind of music cats like? I, I'm not really sure what the practical application of this sort of thing is. Most of the cats in the study were mixed breeds, so the researchers couldn't figure out if certain breeds like certain types of music more than others. Well, uh, right there, I mean, they, they've they've screwed up their control. <laughs> so if if you you're not listen, if if you're going to do this, do it right. Make sure that you have some sort of uh, you know granular data that you can perhaps extrapolate to other situations. If you have cats with mixed breeds, that does us no good. You know what what's a calico versus a, a manx? Uh, I don't know. Was that that big fight that happened last weekend? <laughs> I actually played some of this music for the bull terriers, and their heads did uh, come up. And they listened, and then they left the room. Well, that's because they're dogs. 
Well, I know, and I was. This was my control study. Here are two dogs of a specific breed uh, of uh, two different ages. You know, how do they react to the music of cats? And the answer is not very well. So that was my, my, my methodology was a bit weak. But bull terriers do not like music for cats. Yeah, you need a control group. That's your problem. Oh, that's my problem. Okay. Want to write for the big show? Go to geeksandbeats.com slash newsroom to learn about how you can be a part of the world's most popular podcast. Do it for the glory and the love of the game. If we paid you any less... You'd be paying us. Geeksandbeats.com. Skirting unpaid intern laws for over 75 years. Time now for a Geeks and Beats update. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GB News Update. Now, are we going to tell people? One thing that we have allocated the funds from the uh, Miracle Travel Mug of Traveling Sales and the Patreon donations. No, in the interest of transparency, uh, let's uh, let's let's talk about it. You are getting an Apple Watch courtesy of the Geeks and Beats podcast. I'm going to get the cheapest Apple Watch possible, but I want the 42 millimeter and I want it in black. And therefore, it's going to take you until probably June or July before you actually get it. That's fine. Now, and we're doing this. We're doing this as a pure research piece. And I should point out that uh, this week I am getting my new uh, MacBook, mm-hmm. the uh, the super thin one. Right. And so I that's coming out of my own cash, uh, about $1,800. And I will review that for everybody. So this is the money that we have raised for this Apple Watch is not for some sort of frivolous, wow, look what we can do with the money that you gave us. It's it's going to be for actual research. We are performing a consumer service here. And it is not the $10,000 watch, as we had discussed previously. Again, you are getting the dirt cheap bottom of the barrel, the same model I got, as a matter of fact. Yeah, except you got the 38 millimeter. I'm getting the 42. Because you've got bigger wrists than me. I've seen the size of your shoes. This is true. Uh, so Joe Pro, as in John Poyser, thank you very much for your contribution to the big show. Stephen King, Scott Coates, Stephen Dubord, uh, Ian Long, and Randy Redekop, who adjusted his Patreon donation to a maximum of $27. So he will be supporting the big show for the next 27 episodes. Thank you, Randy, for that, as well as Bill French, uh, Devin Arn, and a whole bunch of others who have helped make uh, the whole big show possible in and to itself. This is really turning into a thing. Thank you, uh, thank you everybody. It's, it's really quite flattering to see this happen. I am happy with that watch that you're about to buy, by the way, with one exception. And therefore, I went to Indiegogo and I dropped 30 bucks on an Indiegogo campaign to make a adapter, a band adapter from a company called Adapt with two Ps so that I can put a standard 22 millimeter watch band on my Apple Watch because the plastic band, it gets sweaty. That's what everybody says. It's a good, uh, it's a, it's a strong band. It feels good, but on your wrist, it doesn't allow anything to breathe. So it gets, yeah, like you say, it gets sweaty. My advice to you when you do get it, though, is do not go with the default. Whatever is uh, an, a notification on your iPhone automatically gets sent to your Apple Watch as well. Go through and manually disable almost every single one of them, except for your calendar notifications, your iMessage messages, which also include text messages, your cal- uh, and your phone calls 
calls, all of the primary ones, because otherwise every six seconds you're going to be looking at your watch. You don't care about that LinkedIn thumbs up that you got. You're not interested in somebody replying to Twitter because you don't need to reply to that right away. What ends up happening is because only the most important messages get beamed to your watch, when you do grab your phone, you've got 10 or 12 different things you need to deal with and you deal with them all at once as opposed to picking up your iPhone 10 times in an hour. You pick it up once, get it out of the way, put it down. You end up spending less time with your iPhone, less time on the watch itself because the watch um, has very limited functionality compared to the, the iPhone itself. It's great for basic stuff. You can dictate messages and all that kind of stuff. It's fantastic. But this actually is the kind of device that you spend less time with technology, not more. Okay. And you're enjoying it so far? I am. And I will definitely not be putting it in a blender. <laughs> oh, I know. The Blendtec guy. I, I, I'd forgotten about this guy. Um, Blendtec blenders are very, very powerful. And uh, their whole viral video campaign has been, what can we blend in this kitchen blender? And they've, they've blended iPhones. They've blended, you know, all kinds of other odd things. And, of course, when the, they, they managed to get a hold of an, Iowa, an Apple Watch and, and they blended it. And uh, this is this is what happened. Ow, oof, ah, ow, ouch. Oof, ah. Yeah, that that just made my heart skip a beat. Which, if I was wearing the Apple Watch at the time of the heart skipping the beat, it would have been recognized. Well, this is the other thing that I see. You're going to use it for your geeky purposes. I'm going to use it for my geeky purposes. And one of those is uh, for fitness tracking, because I go to a personal trainer three times a week. I have a watch by a company called Polar, which measures mm -hmm. my, my heart rate, my uh, caloric expenditures. But I have to wear uh, you know one of these stupid chest uh, chest straps. Really? Yeah. And there's two batteries. There's a battery in the, in the watch. There's a battery in the tr chest strap and you know, they're kind of accurate and all the rest of it. But what I want is, is, you know, tell me what my heart rate is. Tell me what my blood pressure is. Tell me all these other things that I need to know as I'm working out, which is why I want the sports model, which is why, uh, and I want to be able to dump this polar watch. Okay. Hang on. Before we go any further, before you actually buy this Apple watch, we need to confirm you do not have a tattoo sleeve. Am I correct? No, I I don't. I heard about that, where if you have a uh, tattoo ink in the area in which you're going to be wearing the watch, which is, I guess, either wrist, um, the two LEDs, there's two, uh, there's a red one and a green one, and they have a hard time penetrating the ink uh, in your epidermis. And so if you do have tattoos, uh, the fitness functionality of the iWatch is impaired. Exactly, because the light doesn't bounce back into the receiving sensor to help determine what your blood pressure is or your heart rate, and therefore that functionality just goes out the window. So you're okay. I'm okay. I have, I'm tattoo-free. Okay. Now, having said that, you are getting that super slim MacBook on Tuesday in space gray, which matches your iPhone. Uh, yes, it does, as a matter of fact. How thoughtful of you. I have an independent Apple retailer where I live. So I, I don't go to the, the stores because they're just, just too crowded. And they got two in. One was in silver. One was in space gray. So I have my name on one. I'm going to pick it up on Tuesday. I don't even know why you go into a store. Why don't you just go on the Intertron and buy it? Uh, because I like supporting a local business. That's that's really the only reason. I mean, they don't have everything that I want. You know, For example, if I'm going to buy an Apple Watch, I can't buy it through them. But uh, and I want to I want to patronize them because when I do need uh, service, they're brilliant. 
Do you want to give them a plug? Who are these people? Uh, they're called Core One. They're on Lakeshore Boulevard in um, Oakville, and they are fantastic. When I whenever I hear Groove Shark, I think of Land Shark. Yeah, I know Groove Shark was one of these uh, streaming music services that uh, played a little fast and loose with something called Safe Harbor when it came to uh, copyright, and uh, they have been under siege for years, like five, six, seven years. The RIAA has been has been after them, and the various record companies have been after them. And most recently, Universal Music uh, is, was threatening them with a lawsuit that was going to cost them somewhere in the neighborhood of three quarters of a billion dollars. So what they ended up doing, rather than fight any further, is shutting down, admitting all kinds of wrongdoing, and then encouraging their users to go and do things in the legal way. $750 million? Really? Do you really think that the music industry lost three quarters of a billion dollars? No, they didn't. But the DMCA allows for um, damages of $150,000 per song. Per song? Per song. So once you start working out the math... Uh, it becomes the the, the fine, uh, the the lawsuit becomes very very big very very quickly. I think when what was it LimeWire? Um, they could have been. I worked it out once, and I don't know if my math was right, but based on the number of songs that LimeWire helped um, infringe upon, I think I think this the the potential damages was like a hundred sextillion dollars. It's, it's ridiculous. Sextillion dollars. Yeah, it was more money in the, than in the known universe. So does this not suggest that the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which is still a thing, is maybe a little overreaching? Well, it is. And it's, it's it, you know, it was... We're finally reaching some sort of detente when it comes to record labels, rights holders, and users, and streaming music services. So the, the, the groove sharks of the world are falling off the map and and we're getting into this more aligned system of of streaming music uh but what i find interesting about the groove shark is i mean this this is the most incredible capitulation since the treaty of versailles in in, in 1919 oh my god the, the quote was despite the best intentions we made very serious mistakes we failed to secure licenses from rights holders for the vast amount of music on our service that was wrong we apologize without reservation. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, you know. So they, they've they've admitted to creating and operating an infringing music service. I mean, it is total and utter surrender. So, listen. If you were you and I were faced with a potential fine of seven hundred and fifty million dollars, uh, wouldn't you give up? Raise your hands, put up the white flag, and then just walk across no man's land, saying, "You got me." What what are you going to take that I've got that would get you anywhere close to three quarters of a billion dollars? You can take my house. You can take my car. You take my kid for crying out loud. Well, that's not going to equate to three quarters of a billion freaking dollars. No, but at this point, what's going to happen? They're going to put you in jail. Is that is that the end game with the digital millennium copyright? You deprived a billionaire musician of more money, therefore you deserve to spend the rest of your life in prison. Hey, look what happened with the guys at the Pirate Bay. You know, they were sentenced to jail for, for you know, three, four years, fine. But uh, I think these guys were actually, actually terrified that they were going to be sent to, to the big house. The man who beat the living snot out of Pacquiao over the past weekend has beaten up more women 
and he is gone free with $300 million in a purse. Yet you steal music off the Internet and you go to prison for the rest of your life. Well, you know, there are, there are certain inequalities in, uh, the cap- in capitalist society, and, and here's one of them. It's, it's weird. I mean, Groove Shark was rather interesting because they came to me once asking if they could somehow host and present uh, ongoing history of new music episodes. And I think if you had gone to Groove Shark, you would have been able to find a number of episodes that people had uploaded there that I had nothing to do with. And uh, occasionally people would tell me, he says, yeah, I've been listening to your shows as podcasts. I go, wait a second, that's not possible because we don't offer podcasts. He goes, yeah, I found a goose shark. Well, then maybe you should sue for three quarters of a billion dollars. Well, maybe, so I, listen, I'm too late. Groove Shark is shut down. They have surrendered absolutely everything and they don't have any assets whatsoever. So uh, even though they were infringing upon my product, um, I was too late. You're off to Tulsa on Friday to see the start of the last ever major rush tour. I think this is going to be the last ever major rush tour. The guys who are in their 60s, Neil Peart has uh, bad tendonitis. is uh, something that a lot of drummers suffer from, from uh, years and years and years of, of, of uh, holding sticks the way they do. He wasn't the original drummer either, was he? No, he was a guy. John Rutsey was the original drummer who was with the band uh, for the first... Uh, well, Rush, actually, their history goes back to 1968. Mm-hmm. But it was in 1974, I think it was late 74, early 1975, that Rutsey left and Neil Peart was brought in. So what this is, they rushed the band, uh, even after, even though they, they they created, they had one album with John Rutsey, the the self titled debut record with the pink uh, Rush logo on the cover. Um, Neil Peart has as this this the classic lineup. Neil's still the new guy. Mm-hmm. Um, they're taking the date of 1975 as the 40th anniversary uh, as the year you know year zero for Rush. So this is they're calling it Rush 40. So it's a big, long celebration of the 40th anniversary of this classic lineup of Rush. They're going to do this one last tour. Uh, They're playing a lot of they're missing a lot of venues that they wanted to play. I talked to Getty Lee about this. They're not playing Winnipeg. They're not playing Cleveland. They're not playing Pittsburgh uh, because they just can't work out the, the, the rooting to make that possible. So they're starting in Tulsa because they were they they set up. They're probably setting up uh, right about now. And uh, they're going to spend a week rehearsing and testing out all the gear. And then the first show is on Friday. And then the tour goes on from there. Now, the band had three major periods from 77 to 81. That was when they really became popular. Mm -hmm. But then from 82 to 89, that was considered their synth period. And then they went back to guitar rock in 89 to 97. So when you think Rush, what do you think? Well, I grew up with them. They were one of my my formative bands. So I'm that first era. Uh, Everything from... Uh, fly by night through to permanent wa- no through to moving pictures. A Monday warrior, mean, mean stride. Today's Tom Sawyer, mean, mean pride. from 75 to 84. That, that's my favorite period of, 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 of Rush. 
and it's their classic period. It's what everybody seems to gravitate back towards. So everything from you know songs like uh, "Fly by Night" and "By Tour and the Snow Dog" to Tom Sawyer and "YYZ." Maybe you can help me out with this because a buddy of mine, a huge Rush fan, actually spoke to Mark Daly, the late City TV newscaster slash voiceover guy. Yeah. In the Rush track subdivisions. Yes. He asked Mr. Daly, is that your voice saying subdivisions? And he said, yes. It is? And then later on, he said no. Because in concert, Alex Lifeson does that li- uh, does that voice. The problem with Mark Daly, as, as grand as the man was, was he was known for stretching the truth from time to time. He claimed to be a cop, but apparently it turned out he was just a, a security guard uh-huh. uh, back in the States. So the question is, 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 is that really his voice? Mark said it was his voice, then he said it wasn't his voice. The question became, really, who did that line? Because okay. that was the early ages of, of, uh, of, of sampling. Right. I'm going to, okay, so if I have an opportunity when I'm in Tulsa uh, to talk to Alex, I will, I will ask, you know, who did the subdivisions voice in that song? All right, we'll settle it once and for all. Okay, I'll do that. I'll uh, leave, leave that with me. I'll see what I can do. Excellent. Own one of the craptastic mugs of the world's most popular podcast and support the show. You too can use the power of science to hold liquids, both hot or cold. Visit geeksandbeats.com today. So if you're off to Tulsa, Oklahoma, I hope you're not taking a Boeing 787. I'm not. I'm flying a series of regional jets and 737s. However, on the 18th of this month, I am flying to Japan on Air Canada Flight 001, which is, of course, on a Boeing 787. Dreamliner, which is turning out to be more of a nightmare than anything else. Well, I mean, I've flown on a couple of them already and i really enjoyed the experience you're not going to enjoy the experience if you're flying that plane on the 249th day (laughs) i know because according to the federal aviation administration in the united states there's a software bug in the dreamliner that leads its electrical system to fail and therefore there is a quote loss of control of the plane because the aircraft's electrical generators could give out. Now, I talked to somebody who talked to a flight attendant who flies a variety of airliners, and they're all powered by various forms of software. When it doesn't work, you reboot the plane. And I've been on a number of aircraft, including you know Embraer's and uh, um, RJ's and all the rest of it. And the pilot will come on. He'll say, listen, we sorry for the delay. Our pushback has been delayed for 10 minutes because we have to reboot our, our onboard computers. I can't imagine an airliner like a 787 going 700, going 248 days without there being some sort of software reboot it would just happen you know the the these planes are not on all the time they're parked they're turned off they're you know so when you when you 
turn it back on when you start it all up again, you have to reboot all the computers, right? <laughs> the question is, is when you reboot it, does it go... <laughs> I, I don't know. I, and, you know, and you wonder what kind of software... It, it, yeah, it's obviously some sort of proprietary software that Boeing has come up with. But, I mean, this makes you think about, uh, like, Windows. Because if you leave your computer on, uh, your, your desktop computer on, and it's running Windows, uh, after a certain amount of time, it it runs out of some kind of lower-level or upper-level memory that, that that basically shuts it down. You get the blue screen of death. So there's there's every so many hours, you really should reboot your Apple computer. Uh, sorry, your... your 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 Microsoft computer. Before we started this show, I rebooted my computer. If I've got 400 souls on board an aircraft, I'll tell you right now, before I put the key in the ignition, I'm holding down control, alt, and delete. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So I think this is an interesting little... Uh, it's an interesting little tidbit, but again, there is no aircraft in the world that is in continuous service for 248 days without some sort of software reboot. So let's not worry about it. On the topic of software, Leisure Suit Larry in the Land of the Lounge Lizards. Does this mean anything to you? I remember Leisure Suit Larry. Refresh my memory. This was a game by Sierra Online published in 1987, and it is one of thousands of video games from that era that are now available at archive.org to play within your web browser. So these, are, so it's an emulator situation, right? It's an emulator. And Leisure Suit Larry was really neat. When they put this out, the premise behind the game was you needed to get Larry laid. Right. And so it was one of those text adventure slash graphic adventure games where you would type things like open the door, etc. But my favorite part of the whole game was that before you could play the game, you needed to answer um, questions to confirm your age because the content was not particularly PG at times. Right. So before you could play, you needed to answer several questions. Now, I'm, I've got it right here, and I'm going to throw this at you. It says, warning, Leisure Suit Larry in the Land of the Lounge Lizards contains some elements of plot which may not be considered appropriate for some children. So you have to ask, answer, how old are you? Now, keep in mind, how old were you in 1987? How old was I in 1987? I was... See, I was 16, and therefore, if I typed 16, it would say I was too young to play, and it wouldn't let me play, so I had to, I had to lie. I was 25. Okay, so I'm going to type in 25. So now, here, to verify you are really 25, please answer five simple questions. Ted Kennedy is best remembered for his A, driving... B, underwater freestyle, <laughs> C, brothers, D, all of the above. I would go with all of the above. All right, D. Correct. Question two. President Ford prescribed blank for dealing with economic problems. A, tranquilizers. B, employment. C, that everyone wear a win button. D, that everyone should have a nice day. C, whip inflation now, the win button. Really? Okay, I'm going to go with that. 
Correct. Oh, I would have gotten that wrong. Question three. Who lost a daughter but gained a meathead? A, George Jefferson. B, Ronald Reagan. C, Archie Bunker. D, Ted Knight. The answer is Archie Bunker. Right. Okay. And then the last one. In the movie Paint Your Wagon, Clint Eastwood sang A, I talk to the trees. B, go ahead, make my wagon. C, if I ever, if I had a mayor. And D, none of the above. Uh, Clint Eastwood singing? Um, Something tells me you're going with D. I'm going with D. Oops, you blew that one. If you miss another, you can't possibly be 25. And here's the last one. Wait, wait, wait. What's, so what's the answer? It doesn't tell you, because if it told you, then the next time that question came up, you'd be able to figure out the answer and play the game. Oh, right. Okay, fine. Right. The germ that transmits syphilis is A, Spiro Agnew. <laughs> B, Spiroschetti. C, Spirograph. Or D, Barbarella. Okay, it's in B. B. How does this mean? How does that determine whether I'm 25 or not? The point being is that depending on the age you give it, it asks specific questions based upon your age. Granted, specific questions based upon your age when it was 1987. Okay. And that's kind of the trick to it is that at 16, I would have to lie and say I was 19 because if I said I was 43, it would ask me questions based upon people who enjoyed popular culture when they were in their youth at age 43. Oh, all right. All right. Fine, 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 fine. So if you go to archive.org, a massive collection of video games are in there, including Leisure Suit Larry, which, by the way, if you choose to play and you get all five uh, questions answered correctly, my best advice to you is before you and the lady of the night retire to that room, make sure you have a, quote, prophylactic. <laughs> I gotta look through this archive because there's all these old from the from the uh, old stand-up video console days that I would love to play again. Berserk was one of my favorites. Berserk was an incredibly popular game. These games, though, are all based upon the uh, the the MS DOS world. This, I was gonna say Windows, but Windows didn't even really exist at the time. Right? No, it didn't. It, well, it kind of. Well, Windows One did, but nobody used it. Um, okay. So though, and so it's all the 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 eight bit kind of games, right? Exactly. All right, I gotta think about what I was playing back then. And it'd be console games? Nope, it would all be desktop PC games. Okay, so before we got to uh, Doom and, and uh, what was that? Wolfenstein. Nazis, prison escape, killer dogs, the paranormal, Mecha Hitler. This is the Wolfenstein series one of the most important franchises in video game history. The release of Wolfenstein 3D by id Software back in 1992 laid the foundation for the first-person shooter genre. Over the years, the series has been remade and updated several times, with the latest release coming out this past year. Most people think the series began with Wolfenstein 3D, but it actually began a full decade earlier, back in 1981 on the Apple II. I actually remember this game quite fondly because me and my brother would play it all the time on our IBM PC. So, are you ready to see the game that started it all? Oh. 
Yeah, Wolfenstein 3D was a huge evolution, but these games were all sort of predecessors to that because you needed a much higher process. You needed a 386 for that kind of action, baby. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got my first computer in 1992, and it was a 38640 with a 40 megabyte hard drive and four megs of RAM. My first PC had a turbo button. Oh, yeah. Between 4.77 megahertz and eight. And, 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 you know, why would you unpress the turbo button? Like, seriously. Because some games, some apps, were designed based upon clock cycles. And so every time the processor went from zero to a thousand or whatever that system was, um, it would say, okay, that's a second or that's two seconds. And so if you had the turbo button pressed in and it was eight megahertz, things would happen at almost twice the speed oh. that the software was designed to handle. Oh, okay. So I was never much of a PC gamer, which explains why I didn't know that. Okay. So what you would do is you would play your games in the 8 megahertz with the button pushed in, and then when things got really tough, you would hit the button again. It would slow it down to 4.77 megahertz so that it would be easier to play. Oh. Would that apply to Leisure Suit Larry? Um, there are certain elements of the game that, yes, you definitely want, particularly when you're blowing up the doll and you let go of it, and it starts flying around the room. <laughs> Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes. And watch for Geeks and Beats magazine on a newsstand near you. To be part of next week's show, call area code 323-319-NERD. Follow the stories on Twitter or Facebook. And get your dose of Geeks and Beats anytime at geeksandbeats.com. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.